Well, hello, uh, I'm Pastor Mike. Welcome back to the Sola Scriptura Zoom Church video and podcast series. So uh, I've been doing quite a few conversations with other people over the past few episodes, and I decided to um, kind of take a break from that for a minute. Uh, I'm going to have some more discussions coming up tomorrow, I believe. But anyway, in the meantime, I wanted to go back and do kind of a review uh, and address some of the questions and issues that have come up in previous conversations and as well as um, things that people have uh, communicated with me uh, via other formats. Okay, so <clears throat> again, uh, to catch everyone up uh, who's, who might be listening to this for the first time. Uh, so what this is about is that I, I put together a document called the Sola Scriptura Manifesto, and it can be downloaded from bit.ly um, slash Sola Scriptura Manifesto where I argue that throughout the entirety of Christian history, Christian theology has never quite managed to accomplish a really, a true sola scriptura theology. It's always been sola scriptura plus something else, it's the Bible plus something else. It's been some attempt to, to get at a scriptural theology, but there's always been some sort of uh, additional elements that have contributed and have kind of affected the way the, the theology worked out in the end. And um, essentially I've argued that up to this point, um, there hasn't been a successful attempt at a true Sanskrit theology, but I'm arguing here that there is a logical way to do it. And I've explained that if anybody wants to figure out where I'm coming from with everything I'm saying here, uh, I've explained this in the in the document itself, the Sanskrit Manifesto, as well as in the first six episodes uh, of uh, the video and the podcast. So there's a YouTube channel called Sola Scriptura Zoom Church, and there's a podcast called Sola Scriptura Zoom Church. Uh, the first episode, the very first episode is an introduction. The second episode is kind of like a, a little bit of housekeeping and explanation. And then the next six episodes cover the material that I wrote out in the manifesto. So it's essentially me doing a kind of a video and podcast series going through the through the document for those that prefer to listen or watch as opposed to reading the document. Anyway, so based on this uh, kind of approach that I'm presenting, I've put it out. I've had quite a few people interact with it and give me comments and contributions. Uh, some people talk to me live uh, on the recordings and you could you could watch them or listen to them on the podcast and, and the, the videos. Uh, but some send me emails and, and other things. So I'm, I'm going to take some time in response to some of those comments. Uh, so again, uh, the, the document itself is at bit.ly, Sola Scriptura Manifesto. Uh, the website is solascripturazoomchurch.com. Uh, the podcast is Sola Scriptura Zoom Church and the YouTube channel Sola Scriptura Zoom Church. Okay, so one way to think about what I'm doing here is kind of a a different approach to putting together systematic theology. So for those who are familiar with the world of theology, you know that there's, there's some major attempts throughout history to put together a systematic um, paradigm, a systematic view of all that, in, that includes Christian theology. And it's usually really big. So for example, we have somebody like Aquinas who has written the the Summa Theologica, which is a massive document, tens of thousands of pages, probably. Uh, then you have uh, 
John Calvin coming up with his Institutes of Christian Theology after the Reformation. Um, in more recent history, you have people like Barth and Tillich and others that have created their own systematic theologies. And for example, Barth has uh, the Church Dogmatics, which is quite a few volumes and they're massive and they're difficult to read. So essentially when you're putting together systematic theology, there are so many things to address, so many angles to come at things. And, and there's so many different perspectives that could interpret what you're saying in different ways. So you have to find a way to kind of bridge the gap so as to make what you're saying understandable for people coming from many different angles. Uh, and, and writing a systematic theology is extremely difficult. Um, it, it could take years, probably decades even. And um, I personally don't even have the tools to do it. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm finishing up a doctorate right now, but I'm hoping to get into a PhD maybe next year to kind of get the, the training to even be able to put together systematic theology. But what I try to do instead is kind of, I think it's an interesting approach in that, you know, we, we've kind of developed all this new technology and we might as well take advantage of it. So what I've done is instead of writing this massive 10,000 page systematic theology, I've written a 60 page document where I've kind of put together the, the wire frame for the systematic theology, you know, just like the skeleton. And then I've had all these conversations with people commenting on different aspects of what I've written. And in the process of the conversation, I'm, I'm basically adding pieces to this skeleton kind of building this systematic theology, but it's part of it is in writing and part of it is in video and audio format. And hopefully, you know, at some point in the future, either whether I have the time to write it out fully or if somebody else has the time to do it, they could go back and listen to the videos and kind of get a sense of where I'm going with this. So this is a chance for me to kind of fill in some of the gaps of things that need to be addressed that we I didn't get a chance to address in the videos. Uh, when I'm talking to people, you know, having a conversation, it's it's great because they're asking questions and I'm responding to their questions. But at the same time, there's, uh, you know, there's limited time <clears throat> and uh, there's only so much I can say in an hour, which is usually what the time I spend talking to, to any one person. And sometimes I don't even say the things I want to say because I don't feel like the, the person I'm talking to is really ready to hear what I have to say. So sometimes I just choose not to not to debate them or argue with them and, and let things go. But that doesn't mean I actually don't have something to say to to their their particular view. So this this is an opportunity for me to kind of come back and address some of those things. Okay, so what am I going to talk about today? Well, I think the biggest um, challenge I've, I've received so far, uh, pretty much from anyone that has had something to say, it has to do with this one chart I have. So I believe in section one and section three, maybe, or section two, I don't remember exactly of my original document, the manifesto. Uh, I have this chart where I, I have a line labeled from zero to hundred percent and it's called degree of biblical inspiration. And on the right, I have atheists who think the Bible is not inspired at all because obviously there's no God. And then as you move further left, you have liberals, new Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, and finally the fundamentalists are the closest to 100% because they, they take the Bible to be the only inspired work and it's inerrant and, and, and as close to perfection as you could possibly get. So I've created this chart trying to make a point, but almost everyone that has seen the chart has had issues with it. And it's understandable. Uh, I mean, I, I fully understand why people take issue with it. 
but at the same time, I'm trying to make a point and I think my point is valid. So I, I need to spend some time explaining this chart a little bit better. So um, one of the reasons people other than fundamentalists had a problem with my chart was that it makes fundamentalism or the fundamentalist approach to scripture as appearing to be the most faithful to scripture. And for some, anybody that has read my paper, they, they should be able to tell that I'm, I'm not, uh, I've, I haven't made life easy for the fundamentalist position, so to speak, and I'm not advocating that position. But the, for, for others, the chart seems to indicate that I consider the fundamentalists to be the closest to, uh, you know, have the, the highest view of scripture. Uh, at least that's what the, the chart seems to indicate to them. Uh, but it, and it, not just this, but it also makes other groups seem like they're not faithful to scripture. So for example, someone coming from the Catholic perspective will say, well, I believe the Bible is 100% inspired. I just believe that you need an authorized interpreter to interpreter, to interpret it correctly. So it's not that there's a, a lower degree of inspiration in my view. It's just that I don't believe it was intended by God to be taken on its own, the way you know somebody like a fundamentalist would argue. So I, I appreciate all those things, but at the same time, um, there is a point to the nature, uh, there's a point to what I'm trying to say here because different groups have a different view of the nature of scripture and how it is, how it is intended to work. Now, uh, the thing is, the, the subject itself is very complex. It's multifaceted, it's multidimensional, and it's hard to, to incorporate all these elements into one two-dimensional chart. I mean, I have a simple line going from zero to 100, and it's, you know, I don't have a way to describe all these different facets within this one chart. Uh, and so obviously there's a limit to the, to the graphic here, but the, the concept itself is, is multidimensional because it has to do with many different things. It has to do with different views of human nature. And as you interact with different groups within Christianity, you come to realize that people have different views of human nature, different views of human depravity. There's a, we could do a similar scale going from zero to a hundred when it comes to the concept of human depravity, how, how far uh, down, how, how, how fallen is humanity when it comes to spiritual things and, and different groups in Christianity have different views of this. Uh, other elements are epistemology or knowledge and how human beings acquire knowledge. And there's different theories of that within Christ Christendom. Uh, then there's issues of God's nature. What is God like? What is, what is God's essence and how does God relate to created beings? And um, all these different things play a part, you know, God's sovereignty, God, God's, God's sovereignty versus free will. How do those things interact? What about sources? Um, what about the sources that are supposed to go alongside the Bible or are there supposed to be other sources? So, uh, I mentioned in my document that, you know, people rely on many different things, whether it's tradition, philosophy, experience, culture, and so on. So different groups rely on different sources and, and these sources interact with the scripture in some way. And then there's a, an entire field of theology that has to deal with revelation and inspiration. And there's different theories there too. So, so the, the issues that I'm dealing with here are, are extremely complex but I'm trying to describe them with a very simple chart. So obviously it's, it's, there's a limit to what I can say, but with all that said, um, the, the main questions I'm dealing with are the, the question of how sola scriptura 
and inerrancy interact with each other. Sola Scriptura versus inerrancy. And what I'm trying to argue is that you don't need to have inerrancy to have Sola Scriptura. So that's kind of the main point I'm getting at. But with this chart, what I'm showing is that different groups of people um, look at the scripture differently. So for example, somebody coming from, um, let's see, who should we start with? Um, like for example, the, the Protestant view, the Protestant view has a high view of scripture in the sense that they believe the Bible is inspired um, and is, or at least this is a traditional Protestant view where the Bible was intended to be the, the basis of theology, but they relied on that early tradition to guide interpretation. So on my chart, I put Protestants further down the line because they needed extra elements besides the scripture to make sense of the scripture. Now, uh, maybe I should mention one more thing here. When I talk about theology, because theology itself could be defined differently. What are we talking about when we say theology? I'm using theology as something describing our entire picture of reality. So um, how we view everything we, everything we believe about, you know, how things really are, you know, is there a God or what kind of God is there? What kind of, what are human beings like? What are they about? How are they, what are, what are they, what do they consist of and all these things, all this, all the different questions, the big questions that we have to ask, I'm incorporating that within this, within this terminology of theology. You know, the, the word theology to me is being used in the broader sense. And I could even substitute the word theology with philosophy in a sense because um, I can take the same concept and apply it to people even who don't believe in a God. So for example, we could talk about Buddhism who doesn't really, at least some versions of Buddhism don't have a traditional God concept. And yet they still have a, a philosophy and their philosophy describes everything about reality the way they understand it. Just like theology for us describes everything about the, the reality the way we understand it. And the same could be said about atheists, for example. An atheist uh, has some kind of picture of reality of how things really are behind the scenes. They have some mental image of how they believe reality to be. And obviously you cannot call that a theology because it doesn't include God, but it, it's a philosophy of life. It's a, it's a worldview. It's a, a paradigm of all of, in, all of existence, all of, um, all of reality pretty much. And that's what I'm using theology to mean. So I'm looking at this big picture and I'm saying, what is the basis of everyone's theology? And I'm looking at the idea of scripture as being the sole basis and I'm saying that, you know, different groups don't treat scripture that way. So, for example, uh, somebody coming from a liberal perspective, um, you know, they, they could say that they have a high view of scripture. They believe the scripture to be inspirational, to be inspiring, to be sacred. But they don't view scripture as being an integral component of what it takes for us to develop this big concept of theology, this big picture of reality you know, for whatever reason, maybe the people that lived, you know, two, three, four thousand years ago just didn't have the the knowledge necessary to, to come up with a clear picture of reality or however they might explain it. Um, they have a, they have respect for scripture, at least many of them do, 
but the way they see the scripture is very different. And then as you move down the scale, you know, you come to the new Orthodox and the new Orthodox might tell you something like, no, I, I believe the scripture is inspired, but the purpose of that inspiration is to point us to Christ. So it wasn't intended to give us a complete view of reality. It was just intended to, to give us a, uh, to guide us towards Christ. Uh, and then you move down the scale and you get to the Catholic view and the Catholic view might be, look, the, you know, the scripture is 100% inspired, uh, but other elements are also inspired like tradition and philosophy and other things. And God has guided in all these things. And then the church um, has been uh, given the responsibility of uh, kind of deciding, you know, if there's a conflict, if, if there's an understanding to, to kind of guide things along. So the church becomes the, the final arbiter, the, uh, the authorized interpreter, interpreter of all these truth sources. So yes, they, you could say the Catholic church has a high view of scripture and it has a, a high degree, be, believes in a high degree of inspiration for scripture, but, but still the way they relate scripture to other truth sources and, and to, to, the, to theology as a whole is different. And, and you could see the scale you could see that there's a, you could arrange all these different perspectives that I'm describing on this scale. And as you move uh, further and further towards the left, like I have it here towards fundamentalism, the attitude people have towards scripture changes. So for example, you come to Protestants, the Protestants say, no, forget the church, forget philosophy, forget all these things. The only thing we're gonna use is that early tradition because we need some kind of guide in developing theology. And then you go even further and you come to the fundamentalists who say, no, you don't even need the church fathers. You don't need early tradition. You just have to go with the scripture alone. Now, this doesn't mean, like I've explained in my paper, that fundamentalists are successful in producing a sola scriptura theology. I'm just talking about what they claim to believe or how, how, what the claim is regarding the basis for their, their view of theology. So even though people have taken issues with this chart, the the difference and the approach to theology can still be seen uh, as you move from one model, one theological model, one theological uh, tradition to another, you could see that people change the way they view scripture. And the further they move to, to the left on my chart, the, the more uh, focused they are on the Bible as the basis of theology and um, on, on the accuracy of scripture. So you go all the way to the left and uh, a fundamentalist will say, no, you know, the Bible, we don't, we don't have the original auto, autographs, but the original autographs were hundred percent accurate. They were exactly the way God wanted them. So the manuscripts, the, you know, when Paul wrote down the, the books that he wrote and when Moses and others, when they wrote their stuff, they were exactly the way God wanted it. And I know, you know, yes, we have copies of copies, so we don't have the originals, but the copies are, with minor errors, because at this point in history, you cannot deny that there are some minor errors, but a fundamentalist will say, well, the, the errors are so, so small that they don't really matter. So we can be, we could be confident that we're about as close as possible to what God intended the book, the book to be. And that needs to be our only basis for theology. So basically in the chart, I'm looking at two things. Um, how accurate is the Bible as an exposition of truth and uh, how committed to different groups are to using the Bible and the Bible only for their theology. And by looking at those things, you could arrange them on the scale that I've, I've put together. 
And even though some people have have told me that they're not really happy with the way I've described it, those differences are there. I mean, you could talk to any one of these groups and and there's definitely a difference in the way they relate to scripture, the way they relate to other truth sources in their theology and, and the degree of accuracy that they assign to scripture. All right, so um, I'm gonna come back to this in a second, some of this, but I wanted to, I wanted to introduce another idea uh, that might be helpful to some people. So, um, you know, I've talked about different degrees of inspiration, but I wanted to, and then I introduced the different epistemic models, but another way to organize these different approaches to theology is to look at things um, as um, either having things being based on, a, on authority or based on reason. So what do I mean by that? So if you look at the Christian religion, you know, we, we use the Old and the New Testament. We, we have the Jewish nation that was around for, for about a millennium and they had different prophets and, and different events happen. And, and, you know, we have this whole biblical history. Then we come to the New Testament and we have Jesus and then we have the apostles and, and essentially that phase, that historical phase pretty much ends with the death of the apostles. So the question is, we're here 2000 years later, and how exactly does whatever it is that that people had 2000 years ago as a result of the prophetic writings and uh, the ministry of Jesus and the apostles, how does that get from there to us? You know, how, how does it cross 2000 years of time? And essentially we have limited options. You know, one option is the scripture. Another option is the church. The church has been around and has continued for 2000 years in, in various forms. Uh, we have the Holy Spirit that was given to us. So we could say the Holy Spirit leads us. We have tradition and tradition just means, you know, people say the apostles, they, they train their followers and then their followers train their, their followers and maybe their children and then their children, their children. And it goes from generation to generation all the way up to our time. Uh, and then you could have a continuation of prophets. So that's another option. I'm not saying that that's what happened, but, you know, just like God sent prophets all to the Old Testament, he could have continued to send prophets into New Testament times all the way up to the present. And then there's some, some uh, religious organizations that, that believe that God has maintained the, the truth of Christianity by continuing to send prophets. So these are more or less the main avenues by which uh, a correct theology might be passed down to us from the time of the apostles. Now, uh, you know, you have all these different ind individual elements and then you could create combinations of them and you could say, well, it's the scripture plus tradition or is the church plus tradition plus scripture or whatever. You could create these combinations, but eventually whenever you have some kind of um, confusion between the different elements, you have to have some kind of final arbiter. You have to have something that takes precedent. Um, you, you know, if, if you might say, well, I'm, I'm reading scripture and it seems to point me one way, but the church seems to point another way. Well, who takes precedent? So um, let me see. No, okay, so, so that's, that's the authority-based option. Now, the reason-based option is when you when whenever somebody comes to the conclusion that the authorities are not really trustworthy so somebody will say look scripture is a is an ancient book it's hard to interpret we don't really 
know if we're interpreting it correctly. So that's not a good source. The church has gone in so many different ways. It has made so many mistakes. Uh, we cannot trust the church. Uh, the Holy Spirit, well, it's hard to know where the Holy Spirit leads because everybody claims to have the Spirit, but they're all going in different directions. Tradition as well has changed over time. And living prophets, chances are that, that they're false prophets and they cannot be trusted. So you have um, so, you, so you have all these different sources of authority. And then you have people that say, look, none of these authorities can be trusted. So if we're going to have a theology, we need to reason our way through it, to it. So uh, uh, because we don't have any authority to count on, we have to use philosophy, science, culture, or experience to figure out what it is that we're supposed to believe. Now, culture, um, the way I think of culture is basically that it's, it's the result of human, human um, experience. You know, like we can look at human history and we could say, look, humanity has, has gone through all these different stages and it has reached a certain level of enlightenment. And we, we understand certain things better today than maybe we did hundreds of years ago. So uh, humanity is progressing over time. So that's one way to think of culture. And then culture could be a basis for, for our beliefs. And of course, you know, if you have the authority-based options on one side and the reason-based options on the other, and by reason, I mean, reason is used by some of, some of the authority-based options as well, but, but I'm talking about uh, models here that rely mostly on, on reason because they don't trust the authorities. So we'll, we'll come back to this in a second. Okay, and then you have hybrids. So, okay, so somebody will say like, you know, we cannot fully trust the authorities, but reason is not sufficient. So we need some way to merge the two. And when there's, there's probably several options there, but one of them, the prevalent ones today, like I said before, is the new orthodox option, which says um, all the authorities were really pointing forward to Christ. So they're authority, authoritative only in as much as they point to Christ. And then we got to rely on science, philosophy, culture, and experience for the rest of our theology. So it's an attempt to kind of create a bridge between the authority-based models and the reason-based models and find an in-between. Now, um, I'll come back to that last one. So um, if you look at um, the authority-based options, um, we have the church as, uh, you know, one of the main uh, options historically was relying on, on the church itself as a guide or as an authority. So basically, uh, you know, if there was some kind of conflict, there would be uh, a, a council, you know, the, the church will call a council and people from all over the Christian world will come together and they will discuss and they'll come to some conclusions. Sometimes it was just the Pope, uh, you know, making a decision um, and kind of choosing some direction or, or, or choosing an option between various options that were under debate. Anyway, the, one of the models as I've described was the one that was based on the church. So we have that option. Um, the Holy Spirit option hasn't been very successful. So, you know, anytime in history, whenever a group would say things like, well, I don't need the church to tell me what to do. I don't need the scripture to tell me what to do. I have the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit guides me directly. Uh, what usually happens with that is that you have a, a a bunch of different people uh, just 
going in all kinds of different directions. So it, it just doesn't seem like the people that claim to be guided directly by the Holy Spirit um, ever seem to arrive at any kind of consensus. So just historically speaking, the Holy Spirit-based option hasn't really worked. Um, now we have today groups that rely heavily on, on the Holy Spirit and their theology like Pentecostals, but even Pentecostals see themselves as part of the Protestant tradition, which is scripture-based as opposed to relying entirely on the Holy Spirit. Um, and then prophets, prophets hasn't been a very successful option as well either. Um, now we do have major denominations that rely on prophets like uh, uh, the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the uh, Christian scientists, I believe, um, that, that have the basis or their epistemology that is profit-based. But as far as the rest of the academic world is concerned, these options don't work because they rely entirely on, on some individuals. So basically, some person claims to be a prophet and then once you accept that, then you accept everything else they teach you, but there's no way to prove that they were in fact prophets. So you just kind of have to put all your eggs in one basket, so to speak, and just take that one person's word for it and, and that's it. So from a Christian academia perspective, um, the prophet-based epistemologists haven't really been taken seriously and neither has the, the Holy Spirit-based epistemology. Uh, we, we do have the, the church-based epistemology, like I said, tradition plays an important part as well. Um, especially in, in, for example, in the Orthodox, uh, Eastern Orthodox tradition, um, where, you know, early Christian tradition, in fact, like there's a continuous line of tradition going from the beginning all the way to the present. Um, and then the scripture, I mentioned in my, in my original document that uh, the scripture was, uh, uh, there was an attempt to use scripture as an epistemic basis in, in Protestantism, but because it just never, they just didn't have, uh, they, they didn't seem to have a way to come to an interpretational consensus. They turned to tradition for help, but they couldn't rely on all of tradition because otherwise they would have had no basis to, to separate from the Catholic church. So what they said is that tradition started off on the right track. So the first few hundred years were good, but then things went, um, in a direction that wasn't uh, correct. And so later tradition couldn't be trusted, but the earlier tradition could. And then tradition could be used as, a, as an interpretational guide for scripture. So um, this is an example of how you could use combinations of, of authorities to, to arrive at a theology. So Protestantism used scripture as seen through the lens of early tradition. And what I've argued in, in, in my paper is that you, you don't have to rely on early tradition to get a, a, a scriptural theology. You could actually get your theology from the Bible alone as long as you follow certain steps. And it's just logical steps that somebody would follow um, if they were trying to interpret any other book. So any anytime you pick up a book and you're trying to make sense of what it's saying, you have to follow certain steps. And as long as you follow those steps, you could do the same thing with the, with the scripture and, and get a theology with the scripture alone. Okay, so um, this idea of authority versus reason are, is another way to look at the different models that I've described, because you have to, you have to acknowledge the fact that there's a limited number of authorities you could use. And if you're, if you're not using any of those authorities, the only option left is to try to reason your way through your theology. 
So if you if you reject scripture, the church, the Holy Spirit tradition, and the prophets, there's not much else you have to work with, as far as authority goes. So we're we're sort of in Christian theology, we're sort of stuck between all these different options. Uh, we don't have ten thousand different ways to go. Either we rely on these authorities, or or we don't, and we have to find some way to kind of reason our way to to what we believe. And um, the last point I want to make on this. Uh, uh, within this slide is something that I've already said in my uh, manifesto and, and it's actually in uh, video numbers in episode number six uh, of my uh, podcast series or, or video series, which is that a lot of times in Christian theology, um, there's a sense of superiority whenever people rely more on, on reason, philosophy, and science in their theology than they do on, on an authority. Um, you know, you, you know, somebody might say, look, you're, you're basing your beliefs on, on an old book that was written thousands of years ago. You're basing your beliefs on, on traditions from people that, you know, didn't know what they were talking about, all these different things. So, so people sometimes downplay uh, some of the authorities and then try to say our theology is superior because it's based on reason, it's based on modern thought. So that's that's one thing. But even, even ancient theology like Catholic and Orthodox theology does incorporate a lot of philosophy. And in that sense, somebody might say, look, here's a theology that does rely on authority, does you know, have the scripture, does rely on the tradition, does rely on the church, but also relies heavily on reason and philosophy to arrive at its views. And in that sense, to some people, those theologies might seem superior to a theology that's based on the scripture alone. But what I've argued in my paper is that because of the nature of reason, even when somebody builds their theology on reason, they're not actually relying on reason alone, but they're relying on certain uh, axioms or presuppositions or starting starting assumptions, and those assumptions are arbitrary. There's no way to know that, you know, you could have you could have an, a number of different possibilities, and you're picking one and you're building on it. And you could use reason from beginning to end, but the beginning point is still presuppositional, because you have no way to know that you're starting in the right direction because of the limit of human reason. <clears throat> humans don't have the ability to know what is on the other side of visible reality. You know, we exist in, in this material world. We exist in this natural reality that we experience around us. And anything beyond that, what, what in, in philosophical terminology we would call metaphysics, anything beyond that, we have no way to know what it's like. We could guess, we could come up with the hypotheses and build those hypotheses and, and arrive at different conclusions, but we have no way to know that those um, assumptions we're making are the correct ones. So a reason-based theology is actually no more rational than, than an authority-based theology, because ultimately it still relies on presuppositions that are not, um, are not provable. There's no way to know that that's the presuppositions you're starting with are the correct ones. So uh, I discussed this a little more in my um, in my uh, document, the Sola Scriptura Manifesto. 
but I wanted to bring that up here again, just just uh, in case somebody's following this or hasn't hasn't seen the other material before. Um, so, with all that said, uh, basically, when if somebody was to um, especially like uh, I want to mention this to some someone coming or having issues with my paper that's coming from a fundamentalist perspective uh, and I've had I've had a few people who do come from the fundamentalist point of view maybe be, be offended because of some of the things I've written in my paper but what I'm trying to say is actually not at all uh, in conflict with the fundamentalist view in other words I'm not attacking fundamentalism directly. All I'm saying is that within Christian academia, and then I have this chart here that I've used before um, in, in, in my introductory video. So, so let me explain the chart a little bit before I continue. Basically, um, you know, in this chart, I have all the Christians in the world. So I say that there's 2.5 billion Christians in the world, and then we can actually divide those by, by different fragments. So we could say, out of 2.5 billion, half of them are Catholic, 10%, 12% of them are Orthodox. Um, another, you know, the rest are Protestants, but Protestants can be divided into liberals and, and regular Protestants and fundamentalists and so on. Well, that has to do with all the people in the world that consider, them, consider themselves Christians. But we can say the same thing about Christian academia. If we looked at Christian academia, we could actually break it down into groups and we could say, um, some of them are Catholic, some of them are Orthodox, some of them might be liberal, some of them might be traditional Protestants, uh, some might be new Orthodox or other groups. Um, and within this wide sphere of perspectives that is Christian academia, there, there's a small segment of them that might be fundamentalist. And all I'm saying here, I'm not attacking fundamentalism myself, but what I'm saying is that the fundamentalist perspective has failed to convince the rest of the Christian world that they have a functional methodology. So when fundamentalists claim to be basing their theology on the Bible alone, and they claim that they have a certain method for doing this, whatever their method is, they have not convinced the rest of the Christian world that their method works. And pretty much everyone else um, will say that their way of doing it is just not valid and it doesn't produce a sola scriptura theology. And I'm not taking sides here, but what I am saying is that I'm introducing a different methodology for doing Sola Scriptura theology. And I believe my methodology, the one I've introduced, doesn't have the same problems the fundamentalist methodology does. So in other words, for the rest, if the rest of the Christian world looked at the fundamentalist method and said, hey, this method doesn't work, if they looked at my method, they would not have the same reasons to say my method doesn't work as they would the fundamentalist methodology, because I've actually addressed the concerns they have for the fundamentalist methodology. So um, I, I would say that the approach I'm presenting probably works. Uh, there's certain caveats here that I need to mention, but overall, I think the rest of the Christian world, if they were willing to admit it, would have to say that the, there is such a thing as a Sanskritar methodology if it's done the way I've described in my paper. And just to kind of quickly summarize, I know this doesn't make sense to somebody that hasn't read the paper, but I've argued that um, it's possible to do a Sola Scriptura theology if you allow for limited errancy. So in other words, we reject inerrancy and we say, 
there's there's some limited errancy in scripture, but there's not enough error for us to need to rely on other sources. There, there's a limit to the amount of error we, we can allow. So if we allow for limited errancy, if we get our metaphysical paradigm or worldview from scripture, as opposed to getting it through philosophy and then superimposing it on scripture. And then if we get the macro narrative and by macro narrative, I mean the big picture, the big story uh, that has to do with everything that takes place in the Bible. So basically asking questions like, what is God trying to do? Why, why is he allowing sin? Why is he allowing evil and suffering and all these things? What is he trying to accomplish? All these different elements. If we get our big picture from the scripture and we get our metaphysics from the scripture and we love for limited errancy, it is possible to put together an entirely biblical theology without relying on early tradition or on any other elements uh, like some of the other groups in Christianity do. So here's the, here's the caveats to that claim. The first one is that I believe the rest of Christian academia would accept <clears throat> this theological approach as long as they don't hold it to a higher standard than any of the other approaches that are there. Because if you look at all the different theological models or theological approaches that exist in Christian theology, you know, whether it's the liberal, the New Orthodox, the Protestant, whichever, they all have their limits and they all have certain problems. So as long as they don't hold the approach that I'm presenting to a higher standard than everybody else, then I think this approach would work as well. So that's one thing. The second thing is um, that I would argue for the separation of two, two different concerns when it comes to a theological model. Um, so one of the concerns is whether the model is coherent and whether the model um, could actually describe a, a, a sensible theology. And I'll come back and explain this in a, in a second. Uh, but then another set of concerns has to do with modernist concerns. And those have to, those re, re, revolve around things like, um, you know, how does it, how does it relate to, to critical scholarship? How, how is it able to handle critical scholarship? How is it able to handle uh, scientific discoveries? You know, like uh, the theory of evolution and other things like that, that have to do with modern, modern society. And what I would say is we need to separate those two. And the reason is because even if the sola scriptura model that I'm describing um, is not able to handle the modern concerns, it should still be differentiated from other models that just plainly don't work at all. Okay, so you know I mentioned things like the fundamentalist approach that doesn't seem to work. Uh, you know, models based on prophets, model based on the Holy Spirit alone all these different approaches haven't worked. And if we don't differentiate the Sola Scriptura model that I'm describing from this other approaches that don't work at all, um, it would not be doing justice with the model. Um, because, you know, there's other models in Christianity that are deprecated. So in other words, throughout history, people people acknowledge them as legitimate models, but maybe in modern history, like in, in, in modern, times, um, people might say, okay, those models maybe are not functional anymore. Like for example, if we, if we worked with um, 
the early Protestant perspective today, you know, maybe like use, use the Calvin systematic theology, um, that theology might fail modern criticisms just as much as, as the Sola Scriptura model that I'm presenting might, might have issues with those criticisms. But still, that approach is, is still um, an accepted and a valid approach that existed historically. So people could say, look, here's a model that people have worked through or lived by for, for centuries, but maybe today we don't use it as much anymore because it's not able to address some of the more modern concerns. So what happens when you have a model that is coherent, but maybe not able to deal with modern concerns is that at least people are aware of it. So if the Sola Scriptura model that I'm presenting, if somebody might say, well, you know, it's too late for this because we, you know, we have issues today that we need to address that this model will not be able to deal with. Still, even if that was the case, the model should still be taken seriously and it should still be uh, incorporated into um, what we consider modern, you know, just our general understanding of Christian theology because um, all the different models that are functional should be known. And people, for example, people that go to, to theology school, uh, especially that, you know, somebody that climbs up and gets an advanced degree, like maybe a, a PhD in theology, just as they're aware of all the different models that have existed through our history, all the major models and the important ones, they should be aware that there is a model and it is possible to do a model that's based on the Bible alone. Okay, so that's why I'm saying, let's differentiate between the traditional concerns and the modern concerns. The traditional concerns are, is the model coherent? Is it able to stand on its own? Is it able to be, is there a methodology that works and makes sense? Those are the traditional concerns. The modern concerns are how does it handle higher criticism? How does it handle modern science and all this stuff? So we should separate those two and, and give, give the, the source scriptural model its chance to exist. Um, because at this point in time, um, it's not really acknowledged within the Christian community. All right, so that's the first point. The next point is that um, in my document, I've argued that the Sola Scriptura model I'm presenting is capable of providing an independent line of confirmation. So even if we're not able to harmonize it with modern science or harmonize it with uh, uh, you know, the concerns of modern theologians, the model has its own independent line of verification that comes from the historicist approach to prophecy. And this approach to prophecy makes testable predictions. So it, it, it creates a certain image of history and it points in a certain direction regarding where or how history is going to unfold. And if that's the case, say 100 years from now, somebody, could, somebody that is familiar with the model could say, hey, this model predicted that we're going to get here. We didn't take the model seriously because it had all these conflicts with modern science, but hey, it made some predictions that turned out to be correct. So maybe we should revisit the model. But if the model is not known, if nobody's aware that it exists, then there's no basis for, for making that judgment. So we need to be able to, um, we need this model to, to be acknowledged and to become part of the, the collection of 
theological models that exist within Christian academia so that people are aware of it and, and are able to, um, you know, evaluate the unfolding of history and how it, how it relates to its, its predictions. Okay, so that, that's the second reason. The, the third reason in my paper, I've actually, um, I've, I've actually pointed or developed a pathway. Now, I, I understand that I haven't solved uh, all the issues with, 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 with the modern critique coming from the, from the modern perspective, but I've, I've opened up a pathway to kind of point the direction that this model will have to take to be able to address those critiques. And because the model needs time to develop, it should not be dismissed right away, but it should be given a chance for people to work on it and to, to look for ways to address some of the modern concerns. So that's that's something that I've written in my, um, it's, uh, it would be episode number six in, uh, in the series. It's called um, <clears throat> Sola Scriptura Modernity. And another thing I've argued there is also that there are some issues in, in the philosophy of science at present that should be addressed first before people evaluate the Sola Scriptura model that I've been presenting. Um, because until those things are addressed, in other words, logically, those would have to be a prerequisite before evaluating the model. So these are four different things that I've presented as um, <clears throat> elements needed when somebody looks at the, at the model and evaluates it to see whether it's a coherent approach to theology, whether it's a viable uh, alternative to some of the other models people are working with today. All right, that was, uh, that was a lot of stuff. I didn't want this episode to be so, um, so long and uh, with so much information. Um, and it's probably not gonna be meaningful to anybody except people that probably are fairly advanced with the, with the you know, in their theological training and stuff. So I apologize for that, but uh, uh, these are some of the things that I've had on my mind based on um, some of the arguments or ideas or co concerns that people have raised in, in my conversations with them over the past few weeks. And I believe I'm going to have a few more episodes like this where, that, where I address several other concerns. And then um, um, we'll continue on with some of the other discussions. Um, actually, I believe tomorrow I have another discussion and then we'll, we'll continue on with some of these episodes.